Well, once again, we have an opportunity to come together via the Internet. I regret that I'm not looking at all of your smiling faces here this morning. I was thinking that this may be the first time in my life that I have not been with my family and church family on a Resurrection Sunday morning. But at least we're able to be together via the internet, and we're thankful for that. And it's my great joy to be able to minister the Word of God to you this morning. Today, I would like to talk with you about the implications of Christ's death and resurrection. You know, when you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like holding up a diamond to the sun, And that diamond allows all of the beautiful colors to refract through its prisms, and you can see magnificent, magnificent colors. Well, so too is the gospel. When we hold it up to the glory of God, we see His glory refracting through the gospel, through His plan of redemption in ways that just leave us in a state of breathless adoration as we worship Him. And this morning, I want to look at one aspect of the gospel that indeed causes us to bow our heads and, and just shake our heads as we reflect upon God's goodness to us and in what we see in his death and in his resurrection. So we're going to look at the Easter story from a little different perspective this morning. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be examining in a few minutes the first 14 verses. Let me begin by taking you back many years ago before the Lord Jesus Christ came in His incarnate glory. Let me take you back to the days of the Old Testament When God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, you will remember in the the Old Testament there was a tabernacle, later on it became the temple, but inside that tabernacle, which by the way had a construction that was symbolic of all the plans of redemption, we're not going to look at that this morning, but but certainly at, as we look at one aspect of the tabernacle, we see something that is, that is really profound. And that is the Holy of Holies that was in the center of the tabernacle. No one could come near that inner sanctuary that housed the Ark of the Covenant except the high priest. And he could only do that one time a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And inside that ark, which was a box made of gold, according to Exodus 25, was the Sinaitic Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Holy Standard. And above that ark and on each end were golden cherubs with outstretched wings that symbolically guarded the holiness of God. And between the cherubs hovered the Shekinah glory of God, that ineffable dazzling light of His presence, too brilliant to be seen by fallen eyes. But there was a lid on top of that ark. 
a golden lid that separated the law inside the ark, inside the box, from the holy presence of God above that lid. Why? Because the law had been violated and God's holiness cannot be contaminated with sin. So that lid separated the violated law from the presence of a holy God. But dear friends, that golden lid of separation had staggering implications for every sinner who wants to be reconciled with God, who wants to be able to come into the presence of God and have peace with Him. For on that lid, the justice and grace of God came together symbolically when the high priest sprinkled the blood of an innocent animal once per year on the Day of Atonement for the sins of Israel. And that lid was called the mercy seat. And of course, atonement requires two things, satisfaction and substitution. Satisfaction of the offended party, but also an innocent substitute to take the place of the one that has been, that deserves to be judged. And this is what happened on the mercy seat. On the mercy seat, the just wrath of God was symbolically propitiated. In other words, it was satisfied. It was placated. The vengeance of God upon sinners was temporarily satisfied by the sacrifice of an innocent animal. But you must understand the Old Testament sacrificial system merely pictured the ultimate and the final propitiation, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. In 1 John 4 and verse 10, we read, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, to propitiate means to satisfy or to appease, or to placate. God himself provided a means whereby he could appease his own wrath. And here we witness the infinite and unfathomable love of God for sinners like you and me. As we move ahead in history, we know that Jesus was buried sometime before sundown on Friday, and there his body laid all of Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. And then just before sunrise on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And according to Matthew 28 in verse 1, we read this. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. 
And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Dear friends, the most irrefutable and compelling evidence that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God is the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. In fact, in Romans 1.4, we read that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And every time I read about this angelic announcement, shivers run up my spine. I invite you, he says, to, to come to the place where he was lying. And they, they, they came and they could see that the stone had been rolled away from the sacred sepulcher exposing an empty tomb, and there that they could gaze upon the slab where our dear Savior was lying, the God-man who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's not there. His work is now finished, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father, but one day he will soon return, and every man and woman will see him but we will either see him as our risen Lord and Savior or as our righteous judge who will sentence us to an eternal hell. But what are the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection? What are the implications for Christians today? How does his death and his resurrection relate to us? Yes, they are historical events, but do they simply symbolize spiritual realities in our life, or do they actually empower them? Do they affect how we live today? Do they have any supernatural spiritual influence upon us, perhaps in ways that we're not even aware? And the answer is yes, they do. And this is what I want to focus upon this morning this is why I've entitled my discourse to you, The Implications of Christ's Death and Resurrection. Now, before we look at the first 14 verses of Romans 6, let me give you a brief context. You must remember that the Jews were convinced that they had to earn their way to heaven by keeping the law, that they had to somehow merit God's favor by doing good works. And the idea was simply this. It, if, if I can just impress God enough by my good works, then he will grant me entrance into his kingdom. And this is the thinking, frankly, that is at the heart of all false gospels. But Jesus and the apostles come along, and they say something radically different that they had never heard before. They're saying, no, 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 no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 16, man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And again, in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the Jews hear this and they say, okay, let me get this straight. You're telling me that all of the law-keeping that we have been doing is for nothing. You're telling me that all we need to do is trust in the atoning work of Jesus of Nazareth, who claims he is the Son of God, 
that He is our Messiah, that He died as our substitute, that He was buried and He rose again on the third day from the grave. And if we trust in all of this, God is going to forgive us of our sins, past, present, and future. And because Jesus bore the penalty of our sins in his body upon the cross, he not only forgives our sins, but he takes upon himself our sins, our unrighteousness, and imputes to us his righteousness. And therefore, on that basis, we are justified in the eyes of God. Is that what you're telling us? And the answer is yes. And their response is, yeah, right. You expect us to believe that? Well, first of all, he is not our Messiah. He is a blasphemer who deserved to die. Moreover, he did not rise from the dead. His disciples stole his body. And if salvation is purely a gift from God, simply by grace through faith alone, then that would mean everybody that believes that silliness has a license to sin. So we're not buying it. So, dear friends, that's the context. So Paul responds to their misguided analysis in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 by explaining to them the implications of Christ's death and resurrection for those who believe. Now, you may recall that he closes chapter 5 with a glorious climax statement at the end of verse 20 and verse 21 by saying, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then, in anticipation of their reaction to all of this, He begins in verse 1 of chapter 6 and says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, he knows they're thinking in their mind, Okay, wait a minute. If salvation is through no merit of our own, and you're telling us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, well, why not just increase in sin so God's grace will abound all the more? Well, he answers that and he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The term died is in the aorist tense in the original language in the past tense. It it speaks of something that has happened once and forever. In other words, an event has taken place. What is that? We died to sin. In other words, at conversion, we cease to exist in Adam and we become alive in Christ. That which is dead is unable to respond or to react to any impulse or any desire. And by extension, to be dead to sin means we no longer have that irresistible impulse, those irresistible desires to sin. In 1 John 3 and verse 19, we read, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You see, genuine believers are simply unable to live in the realm of sin because they have died to sin. I mean, how can spiritual life and death coexist? They they cannot. And so Paul gives a very persuasive corollary. He says, you can't be alive and dead at the same time. Now, you will say, and rightfully so, well, yes, but 
well, we still sin. Well, that's true. Although we have died to sin, it does not say that we are dead to sin. If we were dead to sin, we would never respond to it. But obviously, that is not the case. The battle still continues on. It rages within us. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Every Christian battles the remaining effects of the law of sin in his inner man. And while the old man no longer reigns, nevertheless, he remains like a defeated tyrant. He still tries to seduce us, but his strength has been greatly depleted. You see, because we are now united to Christ, what Paul is saying is we are alive in him. The law of sin no longer has dominion over us. We live now under the reign of grace. We have been liberated by his death and resurrection, which was also our death and our resurrection. We have been crucified with Christ, and Christ lives in us, Galatians 2.20. And as a result, we have died to the reigning power of the old sinful life, and now we can experience the freedom of living in obedience to Christ. Romans 6, beginning in verse 6, says that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, once again, look at the text. Paul continues with his inspired line of reasoning. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now here, you must understand that the term baptized, from the Greek baptizo, which literally means to to immerse, this term here has nothing to do with water baptism. Here it is used metaphorically to describe our immersion into Christ at salvation. You see, when we are born again, we are mystically united to him uh, by grace through faith which ritual baptism merely symbolizes. At salvation, we, you might say, are, are permanently immersed into him. Colossians 2.10 says we are complete in him. Colossians 3.3 says he, we are hid with Christ in God. We see the same type of concept, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.17, where Paul said, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And again, in Galatians 3.27, where he says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, the practical implications of all of this is absolutely staggering. What he is saying here is that our immersion into Christ included an immersion into his death. You see, when he died in some unfathomable way, we also died. In fact, our spiritual baptism united us to Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. We know biblically that the old man of sin that once defined our very nature is now dead. It no longer reigns. His dominion over us has ceased. Dear friends, here is the wonderful news of the gospel, the glory of 
the resurrection. Paul goes on in verse 4 and says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Newness. Kairos in the original language. It it refers to newness in, in quality with the implication of something that is now far superior. And the point here is that we have a radically different disposition from our former self. So what is Paul's point? It's essentially this. Even as Christ's resurrection proved that his death was an acceptable sacrifice to God, so too the believer's new life proves that that believer has died to sin in Christ. To put it real practically, any person that calls themselves a Christian and continues to live in unrepentant sin is terribly deceived. Verse 5, Paul goes on and says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. The term old in the original language refers to something that is obsolete, something that is inferior, something that is worthless. And the old self, therefore, speaks of of that worthless old man that we once were in Adam, that old self that was crucified with him, with Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 6, in order that our body of sin, in other words, our body in which sin operates, might be done away with. The term that is used there in the original language means to, to render inactive, to render powerless. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then in verse 7, he says, for he who has died is freed from sin. The term freed here comes from the Greek term which means to justify or to declare righteous. This is the term that Paul uses all through his epistle. We have been justified. We have been declared righteous. We've been freed from sin. And what's interesting is that grammatically, the Greek term indicates that, that we are the recipients of an action in the past that enjoys results that will continue in the future. What a marvelous truth. You see, dear friends, when, when, when we came to Christ in repentant faith, our old nature, enslaved by the law of sin, was suddenly slain. It was rendered powerless. Therefore, we were freed from sin. You see, our old nature was crucified with him, as we read in verse 6. It died with him. And immediately when this occurred, in some inscrutable way, we are joined with Christ in his death and burial. You see, our old worthless self died, and it was buried. It was done away with. But miraculously, our new self was resurrected with him. So, according to verse 6, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
You see, friends, therefore, we are no longer, as believers, we're no longer slaves to sin. We have been freed from the bondage of that tyrant. We have a new nature. The old nature and the new nature are mutually exclusive. So now we're able to walk in, he says, the newness of life. In other words, we're able to function differently in the way we think, in the way we act. We can go back to the Old Testament and we read, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, that when we, when we come to Christ by the power of the Spirit, we are given a new heart and a new spirit. In Galatians 6.15, we're told that we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. And suddenly we find ourselves feeling like aliens in this world that we were once a part of, this world that we once loved. In fact, a changed life, dear friends, is one of the surest ways to validate genuine saving faith in a person that claims to be a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33, a good tree is known by its fruit. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, he says something terribly frightened, frightening. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will then? He says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. James 2.26 tells us as well that faith without works is dead. And we see this all over the Bible. You see, dear friends, regeneration, in other words, that, that supernatural, instantaneous impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead, where we're suddenly raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, all of that has discernible ways of determining that that has actually happened. There's the internal evidence, biblically, that we, that we see. For example, a person that's truly born again will have a confidence in the biblical revelation concerning Jesus Christ, 1 John 5, 1. That person will have a love for Christ, John 8, 42. They will have the inner witness of the Spirit of God, Romans 8, 16. They will have a love for the brethren, 1 John 3, 14. They will have a hunger and appetite for the Word of God, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But not only will there be internal evidence that this has taken place, but external evidence. You will see in that person a life pattern of righteousness, 1 John 2, 29. You will see a life of selflessness, 1 John 4, 7. You will see a life of victory over the world. 1 John 5, 4, you will see a life free from habitual or tolerated sin. 1 John 5 and verse 18. Now, although the sinful self is dead, nevertheless, we remain incarcerated in our temporal flesh, in what we sometimes call our unredeemed humanness. We remain in that until we're glorified until we're taken into the presence of our glorious God. And until that day, we continue to battle the flesh, but not without the power of victory. 
Dear Christian, please understand, because we have been immersed into Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, everything about us is changed forever. And what a magnificent thing that is to to experience in our own life and, and to behold in the lives of others. I cannot tell you the number of times I have seen people who were enslaved to, to the most vile kinds of sins suddenly be magnificently, supernaturally changed by the power of the Spirit of God when they're born again. It's an amazing thing to experience and an amazing thing to behold. And I'm saying that not just the behaviors change, but the very desires change. Paul provides us with this contrast in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. He says this, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you, referring to Christians, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In other words, people without Christ. And then he describes it in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So there's the contrast between the unbeliever and the believer. Now, back to verse 8 of Romans 6. And folks, here it gets even better. Notice what he says. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. You see, folks, this speaks not only of the death of sin, but the death of death itself. What a magnificent truth. You see, Christ's resurrection has forever defeated the tyrant of death. Death no longer controls the believer. We have died with Christ and we will be raised with Christ because we are united to him. Not only raised in terms of our ultimate resurrection, but right now we have been raised to walk in newness of life, which I believe he's speaking about here, given the context of the passage. So look more closely at the verse, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe. In other words, we have faith that we shall also live with him. Now, both in Greek and in English, Whenever the future tense is used, it always emphasizes the inevitability of a certain thing. And in this case, the phrase, we shall also live with him, speaks of the inevitability, the absolute certainty, that when a man dies 
with Christ in salvation, he will inevitably and inescapably, without a doubt, live with him, as opposed to living in the realm of Satan and sin. Once again, he's been raised to walk in newness of life. That's the idea. Verse 10 bears this out more fully. Notice what it says. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, beloved, this will characterize the believer who has died to sin. The life that he now lives, he will live for God. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the context here is the certainty of holy living for all who have been immersed in Christ's death and resurrection. If you look down to verse 16 and 8 through 18, you see the Apostle Paul speaking of this even more. Notice what he says in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see, the old master is now dead. And you're no longer responsible to that master of sin. Beloved, this is the stuff of genuine saving faith. But notice something utterly fascinating here in verse 10. Going back to verse 10. He says, for the death that he died, he died to sin. Now, in what way did our totally sinless Savior, the Son of God, die to sin? Well, the answer is that he did not die for his sins. He died for your sins and my sins. 1 John 2, 2, again, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. His death satisfied the justice of God. He paid the penalty for the sins of all who would trust in him as Savior. But his death not only satisfied the penalty of sin, but also broke the power of sin. That's what we must understand. It broke the power of sin for all who are united to him, and as as Paul has so clearly described. But notice something else here in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Boy, talk about security. The penalty has been paid. There's no need for more sacrifices. According to Hebrews 7.27, because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Catch it now, once for all. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. He said, Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, again, back to verse 10. He says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but notice this. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is astounding. 
You see, the sinless Savior lived a perfect life, then he died to sin once for all. And as a result of that, the life that he lives, he lives to God. You see, we, because we are united to him, like Christ, now we no longer live in the realm of Satan and sin and death. That's over with. All that was forever vanquished at the cross. Now we live in the realm of God. Now we live in, in the splendor of his eternal glory, the majesty of heaven. And, and because we are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection, not only will we too share in this realm of glory in the eternal state, but right now we too, like Christ, live to God. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's an amazing thought. You might remember that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul says that, that even now he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. This is an amazing thought. Moreover, Christ manifest the divine character of God. And because we are united to him, we too, by the power of the Spirit, can manifest that character as well. Moreover, and think about this, because our Redeemer is in constant fellowship with God, delighting himself in the infinite perfections of of sweet communion, the same fellowship is now ours because we are in Christ. I want to draw something else to your attention. This is most fascinating. Paul has preached doctrine for 148 verses, teaching on condemnation and justification, helping believers to understand their identity in Christ. And finally, on the 149th verse, he gives the first exhortation. And here's what he says in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. By the way, one of the things we can see here is that we must know doctrine in order to live it, right? If you don't know the truth, you won't know how to live it. And by the way, this is the reason why the church today is so undiscerning and cannot, for the most part, be distinguished from the world. It's because they do not know Bible doctrine, especially the essential truths of the gospel. So in verse 11, he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. By the way, Paul loves to use this word consider, logizomai in the original language. It means to count or to calculate. It carries the idea of reckoning, of, of calculating. It, 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 it also carries the idea of, of to credit something to someone. And we might say, for example, the, 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 he's, what he's saying here is to regard or, or recognize this about yourself. And what's also interesting is that grammatically, in the original language, we see that this is a command that needs to be carried out upon oneself. We need to count ourselves, and we need to do this on an ongoing basis. Well, what is it that we are to consider? Well, a couple of things. First, that we're dead to sin. In other words, he's saying, make it a constant habit to affirm this in your heart, that sin and death no longer has dominion over Christ, and because you're united to him, it no longer has dominion over you. 
Christ's death has forever defeated that cruel taskmaster of sin. And in his resurrection, he has defeated the tyrant of death, and we will be raised with Christ. And so, not only in the ultimate resurrection of our life, but once again, the very moment we are born again, we were raised to walk in newness of life. So, so salvation, beloved, is not just being saved from the penalty of sin, ensuring eternal life one day. It also includes being saved from the power of sin right now. So consider yourself dead to sin, but secondly, alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I want you to affirm this great reality. I want you to do this habitually. I want you to understand that even as Christ now lives in the realms of glory, beyond the reach of Satan and sin and death, because you are united to him, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you. Ephesians 2 and verse 5, Paul says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And in verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What an amazing thing to be part of this predetermined plan. Beloved, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And everything about your relationship to him has has been forever changed. And this is what Easter needs to be about. This is certainly not true for the unbeliever. They are born in sin, dead in sin, children of wrath. They're under the wrath of God. They have no life. They struggle through life to make enough money to feed themselves and clothe themselves. And they enjoy a few fleeting pleasures over the course of their their short life. And then they grow old, they get sick, and they die. They have no hope, no real joy, no real purpose in life. Reminds me of an old commercial that they had on television. It's, it's men drinking around a campfire. It reminds me of my times out in the mountains. And one of the guys says to the other with his beer, he says, you know, it doesn't get any better, better than this. And you know, for the unbeliever, that's true. That's the best it'll ever be. But since we as believers are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 12 Paul goes on to say, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you might obey its lusts. I mean, how foolish to obey the lusts of your mortal body that is temporal, that is dying. In Ephesians, or in Romans chapter 7, Paul describes this in great de- detail about how that, that, uh, that he's still fleshy. And he, he concurs with the law of God in the inner man, but he sees a different law in the members of his body, waging war against the law of his mind and makes him a prisoner to, to, uh, of the law of sin, which is in his members. So it's still there. But even though the sin principle, the law of sin, still remains in the body, the good news is we're no longer subject to it. We don't have to obey its lusts. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 13, that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. By the way, friends, sin cannot be domesticated. It must be eradicated. And this begins by remembering the very doctrinal truths that we 
are discussing here today concerning our union with Christ. Know them in our mind, affirm them in our heart, live them out in our life. If I can put this real practically, Easter is not about Easter bunnies leaving colored eggs and candy in the caps and the bonnets and the baskets of good little children. All of that is is pagan folklore. And we need to be very careful with this, even with our children, and make sure they can separate fact from fiction. Easter is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and the implications of those things in the life of a believer. I find myself cringing whenever I watch children hunting for Easter eggs on on the lawn of the White House or whatever, or in church lawns. My goodness, people, what are you thinking? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. You see, the resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel. Romans 4.25, it says that he, referring to Christ, was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Folks, teach that to your children. So again, because Christ's death was, has forever defeated the cruel taskmaster of sin and his resurrection has forever defeated the tyrant of death, and because we are now dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, He closes this out and says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And the apostle closes this section of exhortation with such a marvelous affirmation He says in verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Beloved, we can rejoice in this. That tyrannical monarch of sin no longer has dominion over us. We are united to Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Christ is now the ruling sovereign of our life. And this is why we feel like aliens in this world, don't we? You know, we're citizens of another kingdom. We, we, we are servants of another king. And, and the church is, is an outpost of a celestial kingdom that the world cannot comprehend. And because our king is also our savior, the one who gave himself up for us, the one who rose from the dead so that we too can walk in newness of life, because of all of this, We know that sin can no longer be master over us because he says, for you are not under law. In other words, the condemnation of the law, but under grace, that is the supernatural power of saving grace that is at work in your life. Well, dear Christian, I pray that you will celebrate the implications of Christ's death and resurrection especially today, but throughout your life. Make it a habit to reflect upon your identity in Christ, to affirm these great truths that we have examined here this morning in your heart, and to live for his glory, knowing that he's coming again, not as one to die, but one to judge, but not to judge us, because that judgment fell upon Christ on our behalf. 
He's coming again, not as a suffering servant, but as our sovereign king. He's not coming as a lamb that opened not his mouth, but he is coming as the lion of Judah, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Think upon these things, this resurrection season. Anchor these truths in your mind and in your heart. And I pray also that if you're listening today and you have never come to repentant faith in Christ, you've never trusted in him as your only hope of salvation, I pray that today you will do so before it's too late. And as you do, you will begin to experience these great truths that are a part of the miracle of the new birth, all because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these eternal truths, and I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you will cause each person to not only grasp them intellectually, but to find a place for them in their heart that they might bring forth fruits of genuine repentance and genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that all of these things will cause each of us to fall before you in breathless adoration as we reflect upon your redeeming love for sinners. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.